Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much that we can be here together and gather together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, this morning. Uh, thank you, Father, that uh, you are a speaking God and we have your word to us, your voice, the word of our Father. And please now, Lord, as we reflect on that word, please open our eyes so that we might see things clearly and understand them rightly. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could just see miracles, I'd believe. Ever heard anyone say that? If I could just see miracles today, if God would just do a miracle for me today, then I'd believe. You, know, you got miracles in your Bible, and I know Jesus might have done that stuff uh, back then, but it'd be real proof that he did that stuff back then if he'd do one today, because seeing is believing in it, isn't it? If I could just see miracles today, I'd believe. Now, I've come across lots and lots and lots of people who have said similar things or think similar things uh, to that, haven't you? Or, as a Christian, you can imagine thinking something like, if I could just see miracles, I'd believe much more deeply. I'd really have confidence then in the things that I believed. I'd really know that they were true. Or, as some churches say, we need to perform miracles. We need to perform signs and wonders because they're necessary for people to come to belief in Jesus. They need to hear the gospel, but they also need to see the signs, the miracles to prove the gospel. It's an essential part of our evangelism. Now, is this the case? Is any of this the case? If people see miracles, will it mean they believe? Do miracles bring people to believe, help people to believe? Will miracles help Christians to believe more deeply, have more confidence in the things they believe? Because Jesus has a bunch of miracles in John's Gospel, and they seem really, really important because a lot of John's Gospel is taken up with miracles, signs they're called in John's Gospel. In verse 23 of the passage we had before us, and please open chapter 2 if it's not already open, verse 23 of chapter 22, it says, Many saw the signs he had performed and believed in his name. Seems from there he's doing a lot of signs, and because of those signs, people are believing in Jesus. It seems that signs and belief go hand in hand. But, but, there's also a complexity. Have a look at verse 23. Now, while he's in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. They might have believed in Jesus because of the signs, the miracles that he had been performing, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He doesn't trust them. He doesn't trust their belief in him. It seems that there is some problem with them, with some problem with their belief that he won't entrust himself to them. Is there something about belief that is based on miracles that's a problem? Now, to answer that, what we're going to do is look at the passage before us, chapter 2, but also roam a bit more broadly in John's Gospel, thinking about this. What is the purpose of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels? What is the purpose of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels? Because before we can think about miracles today, in our time, and how we should understand them and think about them and interact with them, we need to understand the purpose of the miracles that Jesus did as recorded in the Bible. So let's do that. Three steps. Step one, Jesus performed signs. Step two, to reveal his glory. Step three, so that people might believe. Jesus performed signs to reveal his glory so that people might believe. So firstly, step one, Jesus performed signs 
Throughout the Gospels, Jesus does incredible things, incredible things, things that just don't generally happen in normal life. He walked on water. He raised dead people back to life. He healed people who had been crippled from birth, things that we call miracles and that the Bible does too, actually. Through the Gospels, a number of different words are used, uh, words like mighty works, powers, wonders and signs. And actually, signs is John, the author of this Gospel's preferred way of speaking about miracles. Signs, a key word in John's Gospel, comes up again and again and again. And as we've noted from verse 23, Jesus does lots of these signs, lots of signs that are not recorded in the Gospel. But there are a number that are recorded in the Gospel, major signs, if you like, where there's a sign and often teaching surrounding the sign. And they're given a lot of space and attention in John's Gospel. In fact, the first 12 chapters have so many of these major signs and the teaching around them that chapters 1 to 12 have often been called by people the Book of Signs. And then the whole second half of John's Gospel, 13 to the end, is dedicated to the final and greatest sign. And so you can see that John's Gospel is shaped around the signs that Jesus is performing. And it's helpful to pay attention to the fact that John explicitly calls the miracles signs. Rather than calling miracles, works of power, once he calls them signs. Now why? Because a sign points to something else. A sign points away from itself to something else or reveals or conveys something about something else. That's the very nature of a sign. You look from the sign to what it's pointing to, from the sign to what it's revealing or conveying about something else. Now I've got a few signs that we can throw up on the screen. See which ones you think are clear, unclear, helpful, not helpful. That's reasonably clear, I think. Stop, right turn only. Though if you didn't speak English and you'd never seen a stop sign in your life, would it be immediately clear to you? It may, it may not. What about the next one? If this one's sitting along a roadside, I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? The sign immediately conveys something about the road up ahead, it's windy, need to be careful, something like that. What about this one? <laughs> careful, parents running quickly, dragging children behind them. <laughs> strong wind, strong wind, yeah. <laughs> what, what is it? Um, illegal immigrants crossing here, watch out, so that you don't hit them. No longer a sign in America, but apparently it was. Uh, next one. Watch out, exploding vehicles nearby. I believe it is. If you've got explosives in your vehicle, don't be driving down this street. So any of you who are carrying explosives as you're driving along, you see that sign, don't be driving in that location. I think I've got one more. Super clear. <laughs> Super clear. Now, I always wonder how many cows had to fall off and hit cars before you think, we need a sign. <laughs> we need a sign for this. Signs, some clear, some unclear, some strange, some funny. As they get explained, then you're like, oh, every time I see that sign after that, it, it, it pops out, it's really clear what it is. Signs are meant to point to things, convey things, reveal things. And some signs do it better than others. But the idea is once you've, once you've understood it, as soon as you see it, uh, you, you know what it's about. The very fact that Jesus is performing signs should make us ask questions like, what are Jesus' signs pointing to? What are Jesus' signs revealing? What are Jesus' signs meant to convey? 
In John chapter 2, we see the first of Jesus' major signs as recorded in the gospel. The wedding takes place in Galilee. He's invited, his disciples are invited, his mother's there. It seems that his mother has a special relationship to the groom's family, maybe even organising some of the event. Because when the wine runs out, which would have been a great embarrassment to the groom's family, um, Jesus' mother steps in and brings the situation to Jesus' attention, hoping Jesus would do something about it. Now, Jesus responds, verse 4, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we're going to come back to that word, very significant word, hour. But then Jesus goes ahead and he does an incredible miracle. He tells the servants of the household, grab those six stone water jars that the Jews use for ceremonial washing, fill them with water, take out the water, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. No fuss, no hocus pocus, no magic. Jesus just says, Fill the jars with water, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet drinks it, not knowing anything of this. And when he drinks it, not only is the water turned into wine, is turned into the best wine. And he's astonished at how good the wine actually is. Jesus does an incredible sign. And then John sums up the account with verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana, have a look with me, of Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory that his disciples might believe in him. This is the first of his signs, but notice the purpose of the sign. This is the first sign through which he revealed his glory. That's the purpose of the sign, to reveal something about Jesus, to convey something about Jesus, and the something about Jesus that's being revealed is glory, which brings us to step two. Step one, Jesus performed signs. Step two, to reveal his glory. That's the point of the signs. Now, straight away, it makes you ask, what is glory? The signs are meant to reveal his glory. What is glory? And glory is another word that comes up a number of times in John's Gospel, a very important word. Let's look at a couple. The first one, come with me back one page, chapter 1, verse 14. In the prologue. John verse one, chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Word, God the Son, the eternally existent One who had always been, became a man and lived amongst us and when we looked at this man, we saw glory. We saw the glory of God, the Son who came from the Father. When we look at this man, we see the glory of God displayed amongst us. But what is that glory? What is the glory of God? For which we need a bit of Old Testament background. The glory of God is referred to again and again and again in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word for glory actually has the idea of weight behind it weightiness, heaviness. When we consider who God is, His reputation, His importance, His honour, His splendour, His being, His character, it is weighty. It is heavily wonderful. It is glorious beyond all things. And God's glory is so great that if people saw Him, saw His glory in all its fullness, then they would die. But what is at the core of God's glory? What's at the very heart of what it is to be glorious? Is it His mighty power? Oh, it definitely makes God glorious. 
Is it his great wealth that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that he owns this whole universe that his he created? That's part of his glory. Is it his angelic army, mighty warrior beings, thousands upon thousands who do his bidding? That's part of his glory. Is it that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-competent, all-present? Yes, 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 yes. These are highly significant parts of the glory of God, the weight of who this God is. But what is at the very core of God's glory, the very heart of God's glory? In Exodus 33, Moses asked the Lord, show me your glory. Such guts and audacity from Moses. Show me your glory. And God says, yes, I will. I'll give you a glimpse of the back of my passing glory. I'll put you in a cleft in a rock, a a crevice. I'll cover you with my hand and my glory will pass by. I'll cover you so that you would not be destroyed by seeing the fullness of my glory. But I'll just remove my hand as I pass so that you will see a glimpse of my back, the, the passing glory as I pass by. But what is the glory that Moses will see? What is the heart of the glory of God? Is it his great wealth, his mighty power, his angelic armies, his incredible knowledge? What is the glory that he will see? Have a look with me on the screen, Exodus 33. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And over into chapter 34. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What is the glory of God? It's his goodness. It's his goodness. The very heart of the glory of God is his character of profound and wonderful goodness, of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and sovereignty, and justice, and love, good, utterly good. That's the heart of the glory of God. The signs recorded in John's Gospel, in all the Gospels, are given to reveal the glory of God in Jesus. That is, the signs recorded are given to reveal the wondrous goodness of God as it's revealed in Jesus. The godness of God. Jesus, God, become man. All his glory in his compassion, his mercy, his sovereignty, his justice, his forgiveness. The signs of Jesus are not meant to convey mere raw power. Wow, look at that. He's done something amazing. He must be God. No one else could do that. No. Far, far deeper. Far, far richer. They're revealing the riches of the glory of Jesus, of God come amongst us in all his goodness and compassion and forgiveness and mercy. And each of these signs reveals a little more, another facet, greater riches, greater depths of the glory. I imagine a bit like this. Imagine a lamp. I imagine a spherical one. I don't know. But why? A spherical lamp, blindingly brilliant and bright. But there's pieces of duct tape taped all over the lamp, bits about that big, all over it. So it's actually totally dark. You can't see any of the light shining through. But through Jesus' life, his interactions, the way he loves people, the way he teaches, and particularly his signs, with each of the signs, it's like a little piece of the duct tape, 
torn off and the glory bursts through, shines forth, shows, look at the godness of Jesus, his great goodness and compassion and power and sovereignty and, and then another one, and then another one. And more and more of the glory of God shines forth and is revealed as Jesus does the signs in an unfolding way through the Gospel of John. But it's not until the end that Jesus' glory is fully revealed. It's not until the death and resurrection of Jesus that his glory just bursts forth in all its fullness. See, come with me back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus' mother asked him to do something about the lack of wine. Jesus' immediate response, verse 4, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And what he's saying is, the hour to, for me to fully reveal my glory, it's not now. The hour or time has not yet come for Jesus' glory to be fully revealed in this moment. He will be glorified in fullness. The hour will come, but it's not yet at this moment at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' sign of turning water into wine is one piece of duct tape being torn off. It's the light bursting forth and revealing something of his glory. And each of the signs will reveal more of his glory and more of his glory and more of his glory. But it's not until the end that the hour will come and all the duct tape will be torn off and his glory will burst forth. This phrase, hour, comes up again and again and again in John's Gospel. Very important, like sign, like glory. And throughout the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel, Jesus says a number of times, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In your translation, it might be time. Until you get to John chapter 12. Come with me there. It's nice to be together and hear the pages rustling. and It's good. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So some Greeks come up to the Jewish festival. Non-Jews, Gentiles, people from the nations coming to see Jesus. Now, this seems like a pretty small, insignificant moment. A couple of Greek guys, unless you're Greek, you think it's an important moment. But <laughs> it seems like a pretty a couple of Greek guys want to see Jesus. But this is not insignificant and small for Jesus. This is, this is an epic moment. For him, this is a signal. This is a, a signal that the moment has come, that the time of fulfillment has come, that the time of salvation for the nations has come. This is a signal that his hour has now come. See verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come. Now, if you've been reading John's Gospel, you've heard, the hour has not come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. You get here and Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seed. My hour has come. The moment for all my glory to burst forth. The hour of my glorification. And how will that glory shine forth? The glory of Jesus? He'll die. Verse 24. He's the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. And only in his death produces much life. He dies so that we might live. He dies for the people of the nations of the earth that they might have eternal life. God the Son God come amongst us, dies in our place. 
and all the duct tape is torn off and the blinding brilliance of the fullness of the glory of God is revealed in Jesus. In Jesus' death, Jesus' godness bursts forth because it is his wonderful, beautiful goodness that shines before us. The weight of his character and being of compassion and love and mercy and forgiveness and justice is seen the most epically displayed in that moment, in that event where he dies on the cross. When he is there hanging alone and naked and humiliated in agony, if you have the eyes to see it, you are looking on the, the, the bright, blinding brilliance of the glory of God. Jesus crowned in all his godly beauty, for his goodness is most clearly displayed. At the cross, all the duct tape is torn away and the brilliance of the glory of God in Jesus bursts forth for all to see. The glory of God is most clearly revealed, most fully revealed in Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension to glory where he rules all things. That's a sort of a package that goes together. But most fundamentally in his death... Because that's the place in which you see the great goodness of God displayed in, in its most supreme form. This is the greatest of the signs, death, resurrection, ascension. This is the one where his glory is most fully revealed. Now before we move on to step three from step two, now we've had Jesus perform signs that reveal his glory. There's another thing to think about. How do the signs reveal his glory? If you've got a sense of what glory is, how do the signs reveal Jesus' glory? And this is critical. If I could ring a loud bell at this moment to make sure you're awake, if I could highlight the words as they came out of my life, mouth in yellow highlighter so that you could see, this is, I've got to listen here, I'd, I'd do that. How do the signs reveal Jesus' glory? Well, listen. The only way we can read the signs of Jesus correctly is by having God explain them to us. The only way we can read the signs of Jesus correctly is by God interpreting the signs for them. We wouldn't see the glory of God in them unless God told us what was being revealed there. Even from the signs we looked at before on the, on the screen, some of them it's very hard to know what they mean until someone tells you what they mean. And then once they've told you what they mean, they're like, oh, I'll, I'll never forget what that sign means now. But if you don't have context, if you don't have background, if you don't have someone who tells you clearly what a sign means, um, often it's hard to work out what the sign means. And how much more with a sign revealing the glory of the creator of the universe, the glory of the eternal God. Of course, we would need God to tell us what the sign means so that we could interpret the sign correctly. We know what the sign means because the signs of Jesus are explained by God to us. And the way that God explains them to us are in his word either beforehand in his Old Testament word or at the point or after the sign in his New Testament word by Jesus and the apostles. The signs of Jesus are far, about far more than revealing he is powerful, he is mighty. No, no, they're revealing different facets of his wonderful glory, the glory of God. But the way that we understand those facets being revealed is God has said something about them. He has explained them either in the Old Testament before the events take place or in the New Testament, the words of Jesus and the apostles, or both quite often. For instance, come back with me to chapter 2. Jesus' first sign, the sign of turning water to wine. How do we know what he's written on that sign? What is that sign seeking to reveal about Jesus' glory? Now, if you're an Aussie, you think, it's obvious. It's obvious what's on the sign. 
Yeah, Jesus loves parties. He goes to weddings. He goes to parties. And he produces heaps of wine because he loves alcohol and he wants us to love alcohol and go and party and have heaps of alcohol. The sign is an obvious sign. Now, is that what Jesus' sign is meant to reveal to us? No. <laughs> what is the sign meant to reveal? Well, if you have God's Word in the Old Testament and you have that in mind, as soon as it says that Jesus told them to fill jars with water, um, the type of jars used for ceremonial washings, immediately your mind goes, ah, we're talking about purity now. We're talking about the whole Old Testament system of sacrifices and washings and cleansings because we are impure before God and need to be washed clean from our guilt and our sin before Him. Jesus has come in order to cleanse, to forgive, to make us pure, to deal with our guilt before God. But not only that, we also have God's Old Testament word in Isaiah 25, 6-8, and a number of other passages, which Lyndall read for us before. Isaiah 25, beautiful passage, speaks of a great feast, a wonderful abundant feast, the richest of foods, the choicest of wines, where the shroud of death is taken off as death itself is swallowed up, where our tears are taken away, where our, our shame is wiped away, our disgrace is wiped away. And so when Jesus does this sign, Turning the water not just into wine, but into the richest of wines, the choicest of wines, the best of wines. We know this is a sign about the coming of the new creation. The coming of a new age of abundant life where death itself is swallowed up. Where our tears are wiped away, where disgrace is swept away. Where we can know our God and feast with Him for all eternity. That's what this first sign of Jesus revealed. Here is the one, the man, the ruler who brings in a new covenant. A new covenant of cleansing, of death removed, of abundant life with God. Yes, now, but even greater into the future. The sign reveals some wonderful facets of the glory of God in Jesus. Shining through. So we can look beyond the sign to Jesus. The one whose glory is being revealed and trust him for who he actually is. It's clear because God's Old Testament word explains the sign. Otherwise, we couldn't know what the sign meant. Another example. Later in the gospel, Jesus feeds 5,000 people and he walks on water. Now, are you just supposed to go, wow, wow. That's, that's just, wow. And, and think, that's amazing, power. He must be God. Old. No, no, no. We have God's Old Testament word about it. When he does those things, you're like, he, he's Moses. But he's better than Moses. Moses, well, God, through Moses, fed the people in the wilderness. But Jesus, he does an even greater feeding. Moses, well, God, through Moses, opened the Red Sea so that people were able to walk through on dry ground. But Jesus, he walks on water himself. This is Moses, but greater Moses. Ah, Deuteronomy 18. A prophet like Moses will come, but one greater than Moses who will speak the very words of God. This is that one. This is the greater Moses who speaks from God himself. We have the Old Testament word helping us understand what the sign means. But we also have Jesus' words. He helps us understand what the sign means in his teaching about the signs. Jesus takes it further. He's not just greater than Moses. He's not just the one who speaks words directly from God. He is life from God itself. Just like God provided through Moses the bread in the wilderness that enabled them to physically live, God has provided Jesus the true bread from heaven who gives life eternally, true life, if we'll feed on him, if we'll trust in him. 
See each of the signs revealing rich and deep facets of the glory of God in Jesus. More of the duct tape being torn off, being torn off, being torn off. One more sign, John chapter 2. His second half, he's in the marketplace, in the temple courts, there's a marketplace there. He's consumed with zeal for his father, his father's house. He clears the marketplace. The religious leaders, the Jews are angry with him and they say, what sign? Can you, can you do to prove your authority to do this? Now, it's just worth noting, if you run through God's, John's Gospel and see all the times that people demand a sign or expect a sign from Jesus, it's not a good thing. Jesus is not happy with them. And this is one of those. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to G- do this? And Jesus responds by speaking of his final and greatest sign. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. That's the sign. That's going to be the big sign that shows my authority, my rule over all things, and my authority to tell you how you can come to God, which will be through me, actually. That's the sign. The Jews are shocked because they think he's talking about the physical temple right in front of them. That be destroyed and rebuilt? It took 46 years to build this. But verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What's the great sign of Jesus' authority as king over all things and his rule of how how people will come to him to worship him? His death and resurrection. He speaks himself metaphorically as a temple that will be torn down, but then in three days will be rebuilt. He will die, but then he will rise from the dead. And so when the sign occurs, when Jesus dies and then he rises from the dead, verse 22 The disciples remember the scriptures, the Old Testament writings about these things. And they remember the words Jesus had spoken here. And they understand the sign. They understand this is God's plan. This is God, Jesus, taking his rule over all things. This is Jesus revealing himself as the true temple of God, the place where we can now come to God. Don't need to come to a physical temple, can come to God direct through Jesus, the place where the very glory of God dwells in him. The greatest of Jesus' signs, his death and resurrection. What does it mean? If you didn't have the Old Testament word about it, if you didn't have the New Testament teaching about it, you couldn't know. You couldn't understand. You could have been there at the crucifixion, watching him nail to the cross, hang there, asphyxiate and die, and not understood what was going on. You could have seen Jesus risen, come back from the dead, stuck your fingers into his nail marks and into the spear mark in his side, and not have understood the significance of what's taking place, not seen the glory of Jesus revealed in this thing, without God's word explaining it, the greatest sign would not have made sense. Jesus' death and resurrection shows that he is the ruler over all things, and the way that you can come back to God is through him. And verse 22 just reminds us, (laughs) after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture, Old Testament. And the words of Jesus. It's the word of God that enables them to understand what Jesus' signs are actually revealing about his glory. When I was in year eight, I uh, liked this girl. And so you, you think, I've got to look for some signs. Does she, does she like me? And so, you know, she, she flips her hands. One of those moments where everything slows, the light shines through. Now, was that, was that sign mean she liked me? Or was it 
her hair was you know, just a bit caught up and she just had to, to flick it free. She comes and sits down in class ne- next to me. Now, is that a sign showing that she likes me or she just couldn't see the board and she just needed a clearer view? Or I did tennis for sport and she did tennis for sport. Is that a sign that she likes me or she likes tennis? I don't know. So I, I, I talked to my mate who, who was the arcane um, understander of female signs, you know, the, 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 whiz, the sign whisperer, and I, and I said, what, what, the, what does it mean? Does she like me? She, she likes you. She likes you. So we hatched a plan. That afternoon, I got on my BMX, my mate and my other mate, wingman on either side, and we rode off to her house. Bold. Bold, I know. Stupid. But <laughs> and we rode up, and, and they stayed, you know, out of view, and I, I went up to the front door, and I, and I knocked. I was packing death, but I'm thinking, yeah, the, the signs are showing that it's all good. Uh, I knocked on the door, and as soon as I saw her face, I knew I'd misread the signs. <laughs> <laughs> I asked the question. She shut me down. I went away and rode off, you know, blinking the tears out of my eyes as I went off to... Uh, <laughs> it's even now. As I, <laughs> as I went off to... Um, uh, the shops to buy a bag of commisitory lollies and play some Street Fighter. Um, I, what did I need? I needed to understand the signs. I, I needed a word to explain the signs and what they actually meant. I had my mate's word and his word was useless. I actually needed... <laughs> I probably needed her word, didn't I? I needed her to just say, look, it's not happening. I, I, and I eventually got that. I just got it at the wrong moment. The critical thing is... Without the word of God explaining the signs of Jesus and what they reveal about his glory, we could not understand them. We desperately need God's word to see the glory, um, Jesus' glory in the signs that he performed. So step one, Jesus performed signs. Step two, to reveal his glory. Step three, so that people might believe. That's the end goal. So that people might believe and, and believing receive eternal life. Look back, chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They see the sign that's revealing his glory. Their immediate and appropriate response is they believe in him, trust him. Trust, believe, faith. Three English translations of the same word. I think trust is the best. They trusted him. They believed in him. And and that seems to be the appropriate response because come with me, keep your finger in chapter 2, but come with me one more flip to the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20. Wonderfully, in John's Gospel, John tells us why he has written his Gospel. doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us the purpose of why he's written. John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. So there's lots of signs Jesus did, and they're not all written down, but, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write his gospel recording all these signs and the teaching around these signs? That we might read them and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, the ruler over all things, and that by believing, have life, eternal life in his name. That's why the signs are recorded here that we might see the glory of Jesus in them, trust him for who he is, and receive eternal life. But remember the complexity. Come back with me, John chapter 2, verse 23. John chapter 2, verse 23. 
Now, while I was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. They might have believed in Jesus because of the signs, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. And in the original language, even more striking. If you, if you just translate it right through the New Testament, the word um, believers trust, which I think would be most helpful to do, it's very clear. The words then say, many people saw the signs he was performing and trusted in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. They trust him. He doesn't trust them. He doesn't trust their type of trust. He doesn't trust their type of belief. There's a problem with their belief in Jesus that he won't entrust himself to them. What is it? There are two types of belief. One that will not save you and one that will save you. There are two types of trust in Jesus. One that he will not entrust himself to and one that he will entrust himself to. The first type of belief or trust or faith in Jesus is the type that will not save you. And that is the type that believes in Jesus merely for his miracles, but doesn't understand what the miracles actually reveal about Jesus and his glory. And so they're not trusting Jesus for who he is in his glory. They're just trusting in the raw miracle and the power of it. This belief is problematic. This type of trust is a trust that is not in the Word of God about the miracles and actually will not save you. And throughout John's Gospel, when people believe just because of the miracles, it's shown again and again and again. This is a problem. At best, it's an immature faith. At worst, it's not real at all and disappears when things get tough. They don't really trust Jesus. Uh, we get an example of this we'll see next week, even when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Because come back with me, chapter 2, verse 25... Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of humans. He knows we want power, that we're drawn to power, that we're drawn to those who have power because they can do incredible things for us and make our lives better. And if we merely trust Jesus because we think he can use his power for our benefit, that's not true trust and will not save us. Faith that is based merely on the miracles of Jesus is immature at best and likely fleeting and false at worst. Because this sort of faith in Jesus, this sort of trust, is not actually trusting Jesus as he's revealed himself to be. That's the first type of belief, of trust, that will not save you. But there's a second type. A second type of trust, belief in Jesus, that will save you. And this is the type that sees the signs recorded in the Bible that understands them by what God has said about them in his Old Testament, in his New Testament word, so that we see clearly who Jesus is in all his glory and we trust him for who he is. We entrust ourselves to him and so we receive eternal life. He receives us because in his signs, we see the glory of God, the godness of God, the goodness of God being revealed and most fundamentally, in his greatest and most profound sign, his death, resurrection and ascension for us. Faith in God has always been faith in the word of God. You see the signs Jesus, of Jesus recorded in the Bible and you trust that. You hear the understanding of the signs recorded in the Bible and you trust that. You put your trust in Jesus for who he is. Trust in the word of God. Remember when we, we read John 20, 31? These things are written 
that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written. Trust in what has been written, the Word of God. Remember Jesus' words to Thomas. Thomas, who isn't there, one of the disciples isn't there when Jesus is first appears resurrected from the dead to the other disciples and says, I will not believe until I see it with my own eyes. Stick my fingers in the nail marks and in the spear hole in his side. I will not believe. Jesus appears before him and says, do it, Thomas. And Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God, he believes. But Jesus then says to him these words, because you have seen me risen from the dead, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus says, you are better off to have not seen the miracles of Jesus firsthand, not even seen his resurrection firsthand. You are better off if you just trust in what the word of God says about them, because that's true faith, trust in the word of God. Ultimately, our faith in Jesus is, is, is faith in the word of God about Jesus and his signs. So to finish, if I could just see miracles, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Or it's highly, highly, highly unlikely. It might be you see a miracle and at that point you think, I need to hear more. I want to read the Bible. I want to speak to a Christian or I want to come to a church. And, and then hearing Jesus revealed through the word, you put your trust in him for who he is and so are saved, particularly in his death and resurrection on your behalf and receive eternal life. But unless you do that, the miracle itself will not draw you to belief and save you. And so we don't need to be worried and looking for miracles today. No, no, we have all we need recorded and explained in the Word of God. In fact, if we're running around chasing after miracles today, it will stunt your Christian growth at best and at worst lead you away from Jesus. Trust the Word of God that records, that explains the miracles. We don't need to be like, have you ever seen movies where... Christian missionary, they turn up amongst the Vikings. The Vikings worshipped gods of power and might and, and, and um, savagery. And so they, they say to the Christian, unless you do a miracle to show that your God is greater than our God, we will not believe. Now, should a Christian then seek to show the truth of God by doing a powerful miracle? No. Firstly, God has given no promise that he's going to do a miracle just because we think we should do a miracle. But secondly, even if the miracle was done... It would not bring people to belief, not true belief. What they actually need is the Word of God, because there lies salvation. Now, what do you do if you see a miracle today? Well, if it's done good to someone, give thanks to God. If you pray for miraculous healing for someone, and they're miraculously healed, give joyful thanks and, and, and glory to God. It's a wonderful answer to prayer. But don't read too much into miracles, because we don't have a Word of God about the miracles we see happening around us like we did in the Bible. Don't always assume that miracles are from God. Very clear in the Bible that the devil can do miracles, demons can do miracles. In the last days when the Antichrist comes, there'll be a proliferation, heaps and heaps of uh, miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. And so don't always assume where miracles are, there God's blessing is. Hold them very loosely because they're not the important thing and they can be a dangerous thing. But the important thing is this. We can see the glory of God in Jesus as revealed in his word. We can trust him and we can receive eternal life. And so let's be people who grow and grow and grow in our trust in Jesus 
as we feed and feed and feed on God's word about him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please make us people like that, who trust your word so that we might see your son in all his glory and trust him more and more deeply every day. Amen.